Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is COVID-19, the novel coronavirus responsible for more than 45,000 infections and more than 3,000 deaths across six continents. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former Secretary of Health in the state of Maryland. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcasts. Today's episode is the audio from a webcast recorded on March 2nd with three experts at Johns Hopkins. Let's turn to the recording now. Welcome to this special broadcast from Johns Hopkins University. Thank you for joining us. I'm Joshua Sharfstein, Vice Dean of Public Health Practice and Community Engagement at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and former Secretary of Maryland's Department of Health. We're here to talk about the outbreak of 2019 novel coronavirus known as COVID-19 with three Johns Hopkins experts who have been at the forefront of response efforts. First, we will hear from a scientist who developed the International Index of Preparedness cited by President Trump. I'm going to ask her why this index was developed, what criteria were considered, and how well is the United States prepared for the novel coronavirus. Second, we'll talk to an expert studying misinformation and fraud about how you can protect yourself from coronavirus scams. Third, we'll talk to three experts about the breaking news from the West Coast of the United States about the community spread of the novel coronavirus. We'll hear what to expect in the days and weeks ahead. Our goal today is to bring their knowledge directly to you. If you have questions, you can submit them via the webcast Q&A module, and we'll have a chance to answer a few of those questions today. And we'll also have more chances to talk about coronavirus. We plan to do more of these webcasts. And we're launching a new podcast series called Public Health On Call with regular episodes on the coronavirus. You can get all of this content via the Bloomberg School website and YouTube channel. In the next few days, we expect this podcast to be available where you regularly get your podcasts. And with that, let me introduce our great panel. First, Jennifer Nuzzo. She's a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security here at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, Next, Dr. Tara Kirksell, also a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. And then Assistant Professor Lauren Sauer is Director of Operations at the Johns Hopkins Office of Critical Event Preparedness and Response at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I'm going to start with you, Dr. Nuzzo. Recently, President Trump cited a Johns Hopkins study of international preparedness called the Global Health Security Index. I think this here was actually the study that the president cited. His exact words were, Johns Hopkins, highly respected. They did a study comprehensive, the country's best and worst prepared for an epidemic, and the United States, we rank number one. So, Dr. Nuzzo, what was your role in creating this index? 
Thanks. Well, the Global Health Security Index uh, was the partnership of three organizations, uh, the Johns Hopkins uh, Center for Health Security, where I am, and the Nuclear Threat Initiative, an organization in Washington, D.C., and the Economist Intelligence Unit, which is the research arm of The Economist magazine. Um, our three organizations work together. In terms of my role, I led the Hopkins team that worked on developing the index. We helped um, define the questions that went into it, oversaw the data collection, analyzed the data, and really uh, extracted from it what the findings and recommendations are that we published in the report that you held up. How long did it take to collect all that information? Well, it was a three-year project. Um, data collection was a shorter component of that, and um, we couldn't have done it without the Economist Intelligence Unit, which has analysts in essentially every country in the world, is capable of collecting data in native languages and pull that information together in a culturally uh, vetted way to make sure we're getting the right information. So take, take us inside this index mm -hmm. a little bit. What does it measure? So we measure the health security uh, capacities and um, readiness of 195 countries. Uh, we measure their readiness in six categories. I can mm -hmm. actually show for you what those six categories are. The first three um, is looking at their abilities to prevent, detect, and respond to um, infectious disease threats. These are commonly measured areas um, that are part of other international benchmarking tools. Um, but we added to those efforts uh, three additional categories. Um, specifically, we looked at the strength of countries' health systems. We looked at the degree to which countries comply with international norms and their commitment to transparency. And then we looked at what their overall risk environment is. And these are the uh, kind of national factors that can influence, uh, first of all, whether diseases are likely to spread within countries and also uh, the degree to which countries are going to be able to marshal the resources that they have on paper. So each country got assessed according to how many different dimensions there within are, these six categories? Yeah, there are 140 questions that okay. we looked at. Um, and these questions were crafted in such a way uh, that when any analyst goes out to collect data, um, two analysts in different parts of the world looking for the exact same the answer to the exact right. same question will get the exact same answer. So that took a lot of effort to make sure that we uh, phrase the questions properly. Got it. So let's let's see what you found. Yeah. So the fundamental finding of the national, uh, the Global Health Security Index is that um, no country is fully prepared for uh, epidemic or pandemic threats. Um, in fact, the scores on average were uh, quite low. Um, the average score among all countries was a about a 40.2 out of 100, which means that there is a lot of work to be done. Um, the president was right. The United States does score highest, but even the United States is not fully prepared, and there are a number of areas where additional work is needed. So um, I want to first start outside the United States, yeah. and I want to ask you some questions about the United mm -hmm. States. We know that um, the virus now is on six continents, and it's in a number of the countries that are not in the top tier on your ranking. And what, what are your concerns? What are, what's generally speaking, lacking in those countries? Mm -hmm. And what are the biggest issues for the global spread of this disease? My biggest concern is actually a concern for all countries, which is the readiness of their health systems. Um, there's been a lot of work in recent years trying to improve countries' public health capacities, strengthening laboratories, trying to strengthen surveillance. Um, and I think there are a number of countries that you possibly wouldn't expect to score higher um, on the list just because they have made national commitments to do that. That said, um, very few countries have really given the attention to the health system that they need, making sure they have enough doctors and nurses, making sure these doctors and nurses can um, 
see patients in a way that's safe, that they have the right personal protective equipment. And so across the board, we were really worried. Category four that looked at the health system was the lowest performing uh, among all countries in the index. Um, and as a result of that, if there are a lot of patients who are quite sick, then you mm -hmm. can see really serious strains in, in many countries around the world. Yeah, we have seen time and time again in outbreak situations that uh, health systems that are unprepared often uh, serve as points that amplify transmission to the larger mm -hmm. community. So it's not just important that we have the doctors and nurses there to save patients' lives. That's, of course, extraordinarily important. But we want to make sure that when patients do show up at these health facilities, that what happens there is safe such that we don't inadvertently spread to the patients and the right. clinicians, but also the broader community. So let's talk about the United States, mm -hmm. um, the strengths and weaknesses that you found when you did this uh, uh, survey and index for our country. There were some interesting places where the United States seems to have um, some work to do. I think Probably the biggest um, worry of ours in looking at its scores was in terms of access to health care. Uh, we wanted to make sure that in an infectious disease emergency, it's absolutely important that people, one, are able to physically um, get to and, and live near health facilities so that they can get there in time so they can be treated early. Um, but then an added dimension to this is if um, fear of the cost of health care is a deterrent, um, then that could create a bad situation where people either... Um, remain at home, potentially, um, you know, or in their communities, potentially uh, affecting others. Also, they may not seek care until late, where they're potentially um, uh, putting others at risk who are going to care for them, because now it requires a lot of resources. So making sure um, people's fear of cost is not a barrier to uh, seeking care when it's needed in an emergency. So our sort of disjointed healthcare mm -hmm. system could have consequences for our response to this crisis. Absolutely. Um, what can be done in the short term? I know that the purpose of the Global Health Index was to, for, mm -hmm. to generate in part long-term investments for Absolutely. some of these very serious underlying challenges. But now that we're, we're where we are, mm -hmm. um, what can be done in the short term? How much of these gaps can be made up? Well, one of the things that we're seeing the index being used for, it's very difficult to, to say from the index that, um, you know, a country that scores two points a high, higher than another one will be that much better in the response to the coronavirus. That said, in, in benchmarking where countries may have um, weaknesses and gaps, we think that's really important for um, organizations and governments to think about trying to make improvements now and to prioritize what uh, actions they take so that they don't keep putting money into areas that may be stronger. Right. They think of redirecting. Um, but also, uh, you know, I think in terms of let's just take the broader health system. Um, I think that's a, a place where governments and communities need to put their uh, greatest focus now, making sure that health facilities have the personal protective equipment they're going to need, that the health workers have the training, mm -hmm. that they have plans for how to deal with a surge of potentially critically ill patients um, so that uh, an unready health facility doesn't Got put it. the rest of the community at risk. And where can people go to find out more about this uh, index? We have a website. Uh, it's called uh, ghsindex.org. Uh, Great. The report is there. A slide there. Yes. Um, the, I think that one that mentions right. it. Uh, the um, re full report is there. You can download not only the report, but the data model that has all of our data sources. And um, we encourage other researchers to think about using these data for other projects. And, you know, your transparency is actually matched by one of your questions on the survey, right? Like yeah. part of preparedness for, I understand, for the team is assessing whether countries are being forthright about um, uh, epidemics. Yeah, many of the questions um, ask about the availability of public information regarding certain capacities or capabilities. We thought it was really important uh, to do that because um, 
Um, if you're living in a country and you don't know that a plan exists, it's questionable whether that plan is going to work. And also, we need to be able to, this is a great example, COVID-19 is a great example of an international crisis. When an international crisis happens, countries around the world need to be able to understand when cases are reported somewhere, what strengths that country has to be able to continue to report cases and to respond so that they can calibrate their right. response plans appropriately. Well, it seems like this is going to be a great resource during this uh, difficult time that we're in now. Thank you. Um, I want to turn next to Dr. Sell. Um, Dr. Sell, you um, have studied misinformation and scams for a while. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your background on, yeah, on that so, topic? Yeah, so the research that uh, I recently did was on Ebola, uh, the misinformation during the Ebola outbreak and what was happening uh, on Twitter and in social media. And uh, so we did a study where we looked at all these Ebola-related tweets, and we found that 10% of them had misinformation or half-true information. Um, we also saw that there was a really strong relationship between misinformation and politics or discord-inducing tweets. And um, we also, another thing we also saw was that, uh, that there are really strong um, rumor trends. And so we, we saw a lot of rumors about government conspiracies in our data set. And um, now on the novel coronavirus, there's some rumors about government conspiracies. Could you talk about right. what you're seeing as you're looking out at the current landscape right. of information? So yeah, we have here, uh, you know, we have an example of that coronavirus might have originated in a lab linked to China's biowarfare program. That's misinformation. It, the interesting thing about this misinformation is that if you go to a different country, it blames uh, a different country. So mm -hmm. this is a coordinated effort to, um, to uh, sow discord and division when we need it the most, when we need to have, we need to have, we need to have uh, co cooperation the most. And... Um what uh, what else, when you look out on the various different websites, social media channels, what do you see that is concerning? Yeah, so we also see uh, a number of fake cures. Uh, when we look at misinformation about coronavirus, there's fake cures. And then there are also um, uh, different uh, efforts to blame different populations. Here we have some examples of um, some 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 cures out there that aren't going to work. Um, we also see um, an effort for people to try to buy um, and stockpile masks, which aren't effective right. um, to protect yourself. And so, you know, if somebody is selling something online that um, isn't going to work, you know, what's the harm in that? What, what kind of problems can you see? Well, there are a number of things that, that can be harmful about that. People can go waste their money and people can think they're protected when they're not protected and, and take risky actions that they shouldn't be taking. Um, and sometimes these actual, so cures actually will harm people themselves. And to date, there's no approved treatment for the novel right. coronavirus. Right. So, so anything you see that says it cures coronavirus is false. Got it. Um, now, um, how in this sea of misinformation, do uh, good sources of truth get out? Yeah, so people are working on trying to um, promote different sort of true sources of information and also push back against misinformation. Um, we see on Facebook they're trying to push people to go towards um, official sources, the same with YouTube. Uh, the WHO is promoting uh, or providing some myth-busting. Um, other um, public health authorities are trying to do the same. We see that the FDA is um, 
push back against the rumor that um, there's you know, risk of COVID-19 from taking drugs that are made in China. So I think there are a lot of efforts out there to combat this misinformation. But I think the thing that is most important is that people need to be thoughtful about what they're reading on the Internet and consider, is this true or not? And not just take it as, as automatic. I want to zoom in on one issue, which is masks, because mm-hmm. the Surgeon General had to jump on Twitter and um, dispel some myths and say, like, please don't stockpile masks at home. They're really needed for healthcare professionals. And yet you showed a site which is saying, you know, this will protect you from coronavirus. You know, what should people know about masks? So masks are uh, not effective on uh, if it's a surgical mask, it's not going to be protective against coronavirus. Right. Because the air can get in from the side. Um, So. Take, buying a lot of masks and uh, stockpiling them just prevents uh, professionals from being able to have access to them when they need them for other things. Um, or if you're trying to stockpile an N95 mask, these are uh, resources that um, we need in hospitals for people who are actually dealing with coronavirus cases. And so it's not good to take them out of the marketplace and so that no one else has access to them. Hopefully his message will get across. Right. Um, great. Now, I understand that if people want to hear more from you, you're going to be on Capitol Hill later this week. Right. So I have some congressional testimony about this issue, about misinformation on Thursday um, at nine o'clock. Great. Um, good luck Thank with that you. testimony. <laughs> OK, um, now let's go to our third topic. Um, The news of the day, community transmission of COVID-19, the novel coronavirus on the West Coast, um, including uh, a couple of deaths now reported. Um, Let's bring into the discussion Assistant Professor Lauren Sauer. Um, I want to start with a basic question. Until now, the approach has been, um, if there is a case, we're going to aim for containment. The person um, may be uh, isolated. Other people who are exposed may be asked to sort of self-quarantine, stay away from other people until they know they haven't gotten it, go home. If it's a healthcare provider, you know, uh, if you've taken care of a patient, wait at home for for 14 days. But as there becomes more community transmission, um, can that be sustained and and what has to change? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think that as we move from just thinking about containment to thinking more about our mitigation strategies and our health system preparedness strategies, knowing that we will see community transmission and we will see cases, um, a model that we've used previously and continues to work here is this identify, isolate, and inform. So even if you're moving beyond the idea of containment, you still want to identify these people, whether it's in the community or the health system, isolate them so that there's no further spread to impact the community even further and to protect healthcare workers and the rest of the people in the hospital and then inform your infection prevention groups, your public health workers, um, use the reporting mechanisms that have been set in place. And that's really helpful for reducing the burden of disease in a community and protecting vulnerable populations during the time where we know we're seeing community spread anyway um, and we're not going to stop every single case that we that we come across. And um, thank you for that great explanation. And that's related to your day job. Maybe could you explain what you would you do? Sure. Um, I'm the director of operations for the Johns Hopkins Office of Critical Event Preparedness and Response. Um, and it's a preparedness and response en- entity at Hopkins that um, looks to really streamline the approach to preparedness and response across all Johns Hopkins community. So um, ensuring that the health system is 
protected and responding, ensuring the university is protected and responding, protecting our faculty, our staff, our students, and our entire broader community um, at Johns Hopkins. We are a global community, and so it's all the more important to have a consistent and collaborative message right. around preparedness and response. Um, and partly what your message here is, is that even when containment strategy, that, that starts to fade away, the substitution for that is not panic. Absolutely. The substitution is never panic. Yeah. Um, the substitution for that is isolate and inform. Yeah. Identify, isolate and inform is a model that we use in the health system, um, but works in the community, works in community health centers. It works in long-term care facilities um, and really can help protect vulnerable populations within our community. I'm going to follow up with a question about long-term care facilities because uh, uh, in Washington state, that's where they're seeing an outbreak. And um, it's obviously a very vulnerable population. Yeah. Um, what uh, should be going on at long-term care facilities and how, how should this current situation change their practice? Yeah. One of the challenges with long-term care facilities is that you have a population that is somewhat unhealthy and is potentially more vulnerable to diseases like COVID-19. Um, so what you want to see happening in long-term care facilities is um, posting signs at entrances, encouraging hand hygiene, encouraging that visitors stay home and don't visit when they're ill, um, isolating the patients in the facilities who may be ill, even if they're mildly ill. Um, these things that work so well for us during flu season or that we encourage people to do in flu season um, will also help in this situation. And one key thing I think that all long-term care facilities can do, and actually that any of our health facilities in general should be doing, is encouraging their healthcare workers to stay home when they are ill or use a mask um, whenever they develop any sort of symptoms, which is another reason why protecting the mask supply is so important. Great. Um, I'm going to go back to you, Dr. Nazo, um, and ask you about uh, social distancing measures, which are what is right. sort of the official name for things like closing schools, telling people yeah. not to go to the movies, canceling concerts, things like that. Um, there's a little bit of a, you know, um, understanding that like when there's community transmission, now it's time to like flip a whole bunch of switches. You know, how do you think about those uh, sorts of measures? Do they work? Is it time to start? You know, as you um, think about where we are right now. Right. So this is something I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about, particularly as states continue to report cases and we continue to find um, as we are ramping up our surveillance. And that's clearly what's happening now is that we're expanding surveillance for this virus. So we're testing more people than we did before, which means that we're going to see more cases and that that we believe that we're now gaining a window into what may have been happening in the communities. So as we discover the presence of the virus and um, evidence that there's been local transmission, we need to think about how we may try to reduce the impact of the virus on our communities. And one of the uh, approaches is um, in apps, since we don't have vaccines or, or drugs, um, targeted at this virus, to think about trying to increase the distance between people. It stands to reason that if you're sick, and you reduce the number of people you come in contact with, right. that there's less of a chance that you can um, transmit it to others. So many of the measures considered, like closing schools and possibly closing public gatherings, those are all things that trying to increase distance between people. Um, the evidence for these measures um, are not as strong as we would like it to be. Uh, they have... Um, been used in the past largely around influenza. This disease has some similarities, but it's not fully similar to flu. And so I think as um, states, in particular here in the U.S. and other countries, are thinking about using these measures, it's critical that they examine um, the 
uh, evidence that the measures will work, and in thinking about using them, also consider what the potential risks are. So what, what, what do and you mean there are risks, potential risks, right? So, um, well, a measure may sound great on paper in terms of reducing transmission. Say you close schools for an extended period of time. Um, maybe that makes people more likely to stay at home. Maybe right. it doesn't. If people then recongregate elsewhere, we need to think about whether we're going to achieve the benefits that we'd hope. But critically, if we do, if we implement measures that make it harder for people to say get to work, make it harder for the healthcare worker to show mm -hmm. up because now schools are closed and they no longer have childcare to depend on, um, then we could uh, find ourselves in a situation where the measures themselves. Um, may cause more harm than the virus itself. So it sounds like this is not going to be a one-size-fits-all. Absolutely um, not. And it'll be a dynamic situation depending on right. the nature of the outbreak in different parts of the country. Absolutely. And you'll probably hear a, uh, a continual revision of planning and a reassessment of the information. And so I think that's an important point for the public to consider. They may think as soon as they hear about cases, we should close schools, we should close everything. But we really need to take a very thoughtful and nuanced approach to this because we don't want to make it such that the people who, you know, keep the lights on and the water flowing and the grocery stores stocked can't get to jobs and, and um, keep our societies functioning. And similarly, if you start in one place and you try something different, that doesn't necessarily mean Absolutely. that, that, that uh, people don't know what they're doing. They're just working their way through a set of options to see what's going to have the biggest Absolutely. Impact. This is an uncertain situation and it's important to collect information the best we have and use new information as it becomes available and continually reassess and revise approaches as new, new information surfaces. Great. Now, Dr. Sal, you have shown a few slides about uh, things that people shouldn't do, go running out and spend all this money on uh, cures that aren't cures at all. Um, what are a few things that people should be doing? Right. Well, the first thing that people really need to do is think about doing a better job washing their hands. Uh, having respiratory etiquette, coughing into your elbow. Think through, hey, how am I going to practice making sure that I do this in my everyday life? And then also think, okay, if one of my family members mildly ill, um, hospitals are taking care of the most sick patients, um, how do I care for a loved one at home? Um, how do I make sure that I have the time and availability in my work to do that? Um, and finally, think about you know some things that you may need to have ahead of time. You might want to think about having making sure you have enough of your prescription medications so that if it's inconvenient to go to the store or if you don't want to stand in line with people who might be sick, you have your prescription medications. But overall, I think the most important thing that people need to do is think about how we can work together through this um, and not panic. Great. Um, so we have time for a few questions from our audience, which um, I'll look at. One, one here is um, about testing. Um, the question is, is there enough testing and how should we think about testing? I, I think that, that's been a, a big issue since there was some trouble with the initial tests right. and now we're kind of catching up. Who should get tested and for what purpose? Dr. Nazar? Right. So um, we are catching up and testing is going to be um, greatly expanded over the coming weeks, uh, which is welcome news uh, because I think it's important for us to gain an insight into what's happening in our communities. My, my guess is that the priority will be um, first for hospitalized patients trying to understand what they may be infected with, um, for those, particularly for those patients um, who are severely ill and don't have influenza or other respiratory viruses. It'll be important so that clinicians can know how to treat that patient and also so that they don't put themselves um, in harm's way. Um, but I think once we get to the point where we have a little bit more capacity in the system, it will be important to possibly do broader testing so that we can understand better where the virus is and to include in our testing efforts mildly ill 
patients so that we can understand um, how much virus is in the community, uh, how long has it been here, um, you know, what, how quickly is it moving. There are a lot of fundamental questions that we need to answer for which um, additional diagnostic testing would be helpful. But you know, one thing that's really important about the testing that people need to understand is that it, as testing expands, we will see a number of new cases and that those new cases may expand sort of very quickly as our testing capacity expands. Right. They were quickly. always there. But they right. were always there. It's not that we're having this explosion in our country. It's that we're finding the cases that are there. And I think on a point another uh, that we should stress, because we've seen this in, um, let's say, the 2009 pandemic, is that as uh, people... Um, hear about testing becoming available, they may just be concerned, do I have the virus even though they're not ill? I think we would be in a very bad situation if people um, went to a ER, for instance, an emergency room to get tested when they're not tested. ill. Right? They um, could wind up getting sick. Mm -hmm. They could wind up getting sick. That reduces the resources that are available in the ER to treat mm -hmm. people who are sick. And, um, you know, um, we don't routinely test people who don't have any symptoms. Right. Uh, so I, that would be an important thing that they shouldn't just try to go out and get the test out of curiosity. Well, thank you. And I certainly uh, appreciate the fact that you all are now 24-7 on the novel <laughs> coronavirus. And I guess the uh, question that has come in is um, how does the work that in, uh, Johns Hopkins University does, and you all do, different from the work of a public health department or CDC? <laughs> yeah. So um, I think it is in support of the work of public health departments and CDC. Um, we are a university and an entity that seeks to build evidence to improve public health practice. I mean, I think even though we're all academicians, we are also public health practitioners, and it is so important to use that evidence base to inform what places like the CDC and state and local health departments do. Um, when we make policy and procedures at Johns Hopkins um, that are based on uh, the work of the CDC or the work of state and local health departments. It is focused around um, supporting our community. Um, so it may be nuanced. It may be slightly different than um, the language that's used in CDC or health department guidelines, but it is always taking into consideration the work that they have done and are doing and continue to do to support the broader community and then focusing on Johns Hopkins. And, and I know from my own experience uh, as a public health official, um, the team here was just an incredible source of support and expertise for all kinds of unique and different questions. And I think what's great now is that we'll be able to share some of that um, knowledge with the public. So um, thank you to a great panel for a candid discussion of the COVID-19 outbreak. As I noted at the top of the broadcast, this webcast is just one of the many ways Johns Hopkins University experts are sharing their knowledge on this global public health challenge. Please be sure to follow Johns Hopkins and Bloomberg School channels to get all of your latest information and stay up to date with the expert knowledge you need. If you have questions to address in the future on programs like this or on our new podcast, please email publichealthquestion at jhu.edu, publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for listening to Public Health on Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future episodes to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Owen McCusker, Chip Hickey, Josh Sharpstein, and Lamari Morales. Thank you for listening.